In this series, we interview game changers from around the globe about digital ethics, online activism and social media. We get to know them, their stories and how they have harnessed one of the greatest phenomenons of our time. A little warning, most of our episodes are for adult ears only with frequent droppage of the F-bomb. I'm Roisin Bevan. And I'm Daisy Grant. And this is Harness. I love how social media has enabled activists to really find a platform and reach out globally to each other in a way that was previously unavailable to them and which gave too much power to everyone who was trying to silence their voices. I'll start this episode with a trigger warning. I'm about to quote some extremely sexually violent messages which are sent to our next guests, Facebook, Twitter and Instagram on a near daily basis. And as a heads up, we talk about sexual assault and sexual violence throughout this episode. How does a woman with such an innocent, old-fashioned name write like a whore? Please sit on a butcher's knife so you will never be able to reproduce. You are a no-good slut and I will keep my eye out for you just to prove you will gibber less with a cock in your mouth. Unless you do want a cock in your mouth, which you probably do, so that probably would be something you can look forward to. You are the most annoying feminist slut to have walked the earth. You're a big mouth, no-brained slag. Fat fuck, go shove a broomstick up your piss hole. It's really a shame that a man wasted sperm on a low-life cunt like you. What a fucking ugly bitch you are. Is that why you're a so-called feminist? Die, you cunt of a thing. Are you a dyke, lol? So who is the lucky recipient of such heartfelt words? None other than Clementine Ford, activist, author and feminist internet warrior. Clementine has copped a lot of shit over the years, and yet she comes back swinging. Her book, Fight Like a Girl, is a must-have on your feminist literary shelf. Her latest work, Boys Will Be Boys, tackles toxic masculinity. We wanted to talk to her, not only because she's an Australian feminist icon, but because despite all of the abuse and vitriol, she's still there. She's online, she's resisting, she persists in using those spaces for good to educate, connect and highlight women's issues. Somehow she finds a balance. She has a wicked sense of humour and is an incredible example to us all when it comes to managing boundaries and, well, fighting proudly like a girl. We recorded this interview shortly after that Gillette ad came out and we mention a couple of cases which it's important to provide some background on. First, the 2018 Ulster rugby rape trial in Belfast, in which Paddy Jackson and Stuart Olding were both acquitted. The evidence against them was overwhelming and the result, baffling. Look up the WhatsApp transcripts of the parties involved, but be warned, it will make your skin crawl. The other is that of Aya Musaweh. Cody Herman, aged just 20, has now pled guilty to raping and murdering Aya in January this year. She was an international student from Palestine, enjoying her year abroad in Melbourne. She was attacked less than a kilometre from her home, whilst FaceTiming her sisters. It was such a thrill for us to talk to Clementine. We could have picked her brain for hours. You'll hear at the end of the interview we can see that time is running out, but agree a part two is in order. Occasionally, you might hear her son in the background. We could have edited that out, but we thought it was important to include it to demonstrate how she and so many other parents do such an incredible job of juggling. So here she is, Clementine Ford. I see you've um, cracked out the champers today. Woo! 
I have. I've got a glass with me right now. I'm lying in bed and drinking drinking a glass. You are fabulous. You describe Fight Like a Girl like a love letter to all women. So we wanted to start by saying thank you because that was gratefully received. In the lead up to this interview, we re-listened to it on Audible. And I think there was something about having you read that. Sorry, love- that's Hello. 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 <laughs> <laughs> You can stay, but you have to be very quiet. Yeah, you can stay. Sorry, he's jumping on the bed now. Oh, that's fair. I think there's some something about listening to you read those words that it felt like it hit home in a different way. And we were saying on the train today that we feel like you're our life barrister. Yes. <laughs> like defending our corner. <laughs> Thank you so much. That's exactly what I wanted people to feel when reading this book or listening to this book. So I'm really thrilled that that's how you felt while you were reading it. I wish I'd had it when I was 15. Absolutely, yeah. I actually went to a um, high school feminist conference today. There's a a high school here that started a feminist collective and they put on a conference for all of these other high school kids to come and attend. And, you know, it was such a privilege to be there and just be surrounded by these incredibly inspiring young women. There were young men there and there were young non-binary kids there and, you know, even that, like, that's just not something that we would have been aware of when I was 15. No way. I was, I was so embarrassing. I definitely remember saying like, I'm not a feminist. I'm an equalist. Oh, I wish I could go back to my past self and be like, read a book, Daisy. It's so cringy. That was me through and through. I was terrified of what feminist meant because it meant that boys wouldn't like you and yeah. that was the worst possible you know that the idea that boys wouldn't like you and that's unfortunately there are still lots and lots of young girls and young women and older women who have just still so deeply internalized that message that the most important thing we can have is men's approval mm. you know, it just makes so fucking sad and the that women are only kind of relevant when they're likable or fuckable, as you yeah. say. Yeah, exactly. And that we have to like make sure none of the men that we're speaking to possibly at all ever feel targeted by our anger. We're delighted and excited for Boys Will Be Boys. And we're recording this from London, as you know. And so we've not been able to get a, our hands on Boys Will Be Boys. But we're delighted to hear that you're bringing it to us. Can you tell us a bit about that? I am. I'm really excited. It'll be out in July. I think it's coming out. It's, you know, it's one of those things where it's a bit tricky because I wrote it in the middle of 2018 and by the time it comes out, or at the start of 2018 really, by the time it comes out in the UK, it's it'll have been, you know, like a, at least a year will have passed. Mm. And as we know, so much happens in a year and so many different things. I mean, I, I made a few changes to it to um, in between it coming out in Australia and, and me sending them the manuscript for the UK because... Brett Kavanaugh happened. By the time it comes out, even more stuff will have happened. You know, even the fact that um, the Gillette ad that came out a couple of months ago that caused such widespread male fragility all around the world. I'm offended. (laughs) I listened to people's hostility about that ad. Oh, you're demonising men. Look at this. You're just saying all men are these things and they're all terrible. And I felt like I watched that ad and I was like, this is such a positive. I mean, yes, it's for a massive corporation, so that's a problem in itself. But this is such a positive perspective of masculinity. Like this is saying this is what men can and should be. And for me, I just couldn't understand how anyone could watch that and consider the ad anti-men. I felt like it was so pro-men. 
um, in a really good way. But it just speaks to how how terribly frightened a lot of men are of even challenging their own positions in society. So, so can you just tell us what initially motivated you to write Boys Will Be Boys? Well, for me, it really felt like the natural progression from Fight Like a Girl. Um, Fight Like a Girl was obviously a, a, you know, part memoir. I called it part memoir, part manifesto because it was partly a reflection on my own experience of being socialised as female in this world and everything that accompanies that and the frustration of um, the frustration of the hypocritical shifting goalposts. You know that as women, one of the one of the many things that we face is that we are not allowed to be in control of our own narratives. So one of the things that I talked about in quite great, great detail in Fight Like a Girl was the expectation that women modify our behaviour in order to somehow prevent bad things being done to us. Mm. Um, you know, we're all familiar with those directions. You know, don't don't wear skirts that are too short. Don't drink too much. Don't go home with men who you don't know. And if you do go home, then you should know what to expect, etc. I mean, it's all such archaic bullshit. Mm. But the fact that we still, you know, these these messages are still widely spread just shows how deeply people hold on to the desire to control women's behavior and it doesn't work we're shown that it doesn't work when um Aya was killed in Australia one of the things that shocked me was that you know she was on the phone and I was like that is a tactic I use all the time when I'm walking home I'll call someone because I'm thinking no one's going to attack me if I'm being called but then that's exactly the thing that that was used against her and it's like oh my god we can't win we literally can't win yeah after that fact came out you know there were more than a few people who had to share their extremely important opinions hmm. about how oh well she should bloody well been on the phone you've got to be oh, aware of yourself. <laughs> that's what i mean by the shifting goalposts we're told one thing and then we do we do the thing and then we, we're blamed for that yeah and, but it's the deeper frustration and fury of that comes for me comes from the fact that we're not allowed to talk about it. So men are allowed to dictate men and, and women who are the agents of patriarchy are allowed to dictate to women how we need to modify our behavior in order to somehow stop these things from happening to us. So in doing that, they acknowledge that these are risks for us. And yet when we say, if we were to turn around and say, yeah, these are risks for us and these are how I mitigate those risks, these are the things that I do. I, I speak on the phone when I'm walking home from the tram at night or the train. Um, I carry my keys between my fingers. I don't let men buy me drinks. I, I, I won't leave my drink unattended in the pub or whatever it might be. I, don't, I, I would never let a man walk me home or I wouldn't go home with a man, whatever. Oh, well, what? Yeah, yeah, this just sounds a bit paranoid to me. <laughs> and, you know, this idea that somehow us talking about this stuff makes us reflect our own deep paranoia, the way it reflects how women, of course, overreact to everything. And worse, that it reflects our deep hatred and suspicion of men. Oh, well, not all men are like that. You know, you can't, you're just demonizing men when you talk like that. And for me, that's one of, like I said, one of the most frustrating and infuriating things that. What it really boils down to is that women's behaviour is able to be controlled and dictated by men and by patriarchal narratives to force us to somehow like minimise our participation in the world in order to stop bad things from happening to us. And yet the moment that we talk about that, that control is taken away from us. So this is, this is again, 
like sexual assault, like patriarchy across the board, it's about control. Mm. We're not allowed to control how we talk about the risks that we face. And the reason for that, I think, is that if a man is standing there and saying, you need to take X, Y, Z precautions to stop bad stuff from happening to us, he gets to control his position in that narrative. He gets to say, I'm telling you this because I'm a good guy. I would never do this stuff to you. But I know that there are bad men out there. And I'm telling you as a good guy, I'm telling you what you need to do. But if you as a woman turn around and say, okay, this is what I need to do because men are a threat to me, he doesn't have control over where you position him on that good, bad line. Mm. So you can say you're a bad guy. And that's the moment where he's like, well, you're making me feel bad. You're making me yeah. feel implicated and targeted. And that's not fair. You need to be nicer to me. You need to recognize that I'm a good guy. And mm. that's really what it comes down to is that, is that the men who control this conversation, it's, you know, Hannah Gadsby's line. Like they want to control the line. They want to say which side of the line that they're on. And that means that they get to control which side of the line other men are on. So they might say, yes, I agree that rape is bad. But, you know, that thing that my friend did, well, that's not rape. I know him. He's a good guy. Men still don't get that we don't give a shit what they think about us. They don't get that we don't care if they want to fuck us, that we don't care if they think that we're hot. Like, they're still stuck in this idea that the most horrifying, terrible thing they can say to us is that they wouldn't have sex with us and that we're ugly so no man would have sex with us. And that's really why we're angry because we're unfuckable shrews. <laughs> well, the thing that was probably the nicest surprise about your book was actually how funny it was, you know, despite all of the darkness and the ugliness and the, the horrible things that you were discussing and there were points in the book where I absolutely found myself in tears but I also laughed continuously throughout it because this sort of dry witticism that you have is really funny and it sheds light on on some things that are otherwise so painful and so dark we have to laugh about it and we have to find the humor in it yeah I think that there's a real power in I mean obviously some of the things that I wrote about are horribly dark and scary and gross but you know any woman who has any kind of life on the internet experiences that. And I think that there's something really powerful in not only broadcasting that to other people and to other women, especially saying like, I get this too. We all get this, you Mm. know, and standing in that together and saying like, we can create a space together where we, we sort of shield each other from this, but also the power that comes from showing others that you can laugh at it. And I don't mean laugh at it to laugh it off but laugh at it to really ridicule how absurd it is. Um, and I think that one of, that's one of the things that seems to have gotten a lot of men so angry. I mean, men hate women laughing at them. Mm. But it especially like in the, in the sort of digital space infuriates men to see all of these hundreds, you know, in, in, or thousands in some cases, long comment threads of women just having a good laugh at their expense. But I think that that's a really powerful space for women to be in because for so long we've been told that we're not allowed to do that. We have to protect and coddle men's egos and we have to make sure that they don't feel bad by any, from anything that we say. And, you know, I see, I see a lot of women really finding a great deal of freedom in that act, you know, that they're like having a lot of fun with it and they're reaching out to other women and, and backing them up and providing solidarity. And that's just such a powerful thing. How's the um, response been to Boys Will Be Boys in Australia? 
it's good. It's been slightly different to the response to Fight Like a Girl because um, it's probably slightly more, I won't say academic in tone because I'm not an academic, but it's, I mean, Fight Like a Girl had so much personal stuff in there. Mm. And I think that that really, you know, the reason it had such a huge response from women was because it's everyone's story. But Boys Will Be Boys looks more like cultural factors and more at what's going on in external society. Um, And it's not that there's been less of an audience for it. You know, thankfully the book's been selling really well. I think it's just more that, you know, in lots of ways, it's a it's a much more difficult read. It's quite it was quite hard. I felt um, I really struggled to write a lot of it actually because I was spending time in some really dark spaces. Um, you know, I did a lot of research into the incel community, which was a very depressing space to be in. Um, and you know, looking at also the family court and men's rights activists and how they how they manipulate the narratives around the family court and around rape culture to their own ends. And it was just quite a dark space to spend time in. I've tried to use that same kind of light and shade of humour. And, you know, people have have thankfully said that they were also surprised by how funny it was. So I'm really glad for that because it's not the kind of book that I think you could just read in its sort of basic horror. Mm But what I tried to do as well and what I tried to find the balance with was I do showcase all of these different ways that toxic masculinity kind of expresses itself and that um, men are socialised to bond with each other in really unhealthy ways. Um, You know, there's quite an extensive chapter on on rape culture and um, I looked in in detail at the the circumstances around the, the rape in Belfast, you know, with the Ulster rugby boys. Um, really, really hard to write and really hard to spend time in. And fuck me, that woman is just a hero. She really is. That, that was just a horrible, horrible trial. Do you know that because all of those boys had their own lawyer, she had to endure four different lawyers cross-examining her? That's, I literally can't even fathom that. That's horrendous. It's just... It's just so I don't know. That was a really that was a really tough thing to write. Like I t- it took me a long time to write that chapter, and I started smoking again while I was writing the book. So that sort of tells you how hard it was. How did you take care of yourself, like mentally, when you were in those spaces? Did, were there things that you did to kind of um, distract you and take yourself away and relax from it all? Well, in a weird way, actually, I was really helped by the fact that I, you know, have as you heard before, I've got a young child and. Um, he, when I was writing the book, he was between the ages of 11 months and just under two. So it was really in that sort of second year of his life that I was writing the book. And that's a really distracting time anyway. You know, um, it was hard to go home from from writing about hor- horrible rape culture and stay in that moment because I had to literally take care of an infant mm. um but it was also really a very healing experience in lots of ways as well because I saw for me that really drove home the purpose of why I wanted to write the book and it's not just because it's a theoretical companion to fight like a girl in that you know this is the next logical step to look at how patriarchy impacts and effect affects boys and how it teaches 
all too many of them to kind of weaponize their masculinity against other people in defense of patriarchy. But it it gave me a really immediate um, purpose, you know, that I want the world to be different for him. Mm. I don't want to be indoctrinated into toxic masculinity and into male bullshit. I want him to be, if he if he indeed ends up being a man, I want him to be the kind of man who knows that there's different op- options for him out there and that he can express himself in different ways. And I don't want him to be oppressed by patriarchy. But at the same time, I really don't want him to become a tool of it. Yeah, that's a beautiful way of saying it. And, I, and there's an absolutely moving, gorgeous letter at the back of your book, which is dedicated to your son about all the different kinds of boy that he can be. And this book is for men too. And I don't think that needs to be a precursor to sell the book, but this is for everyone, this book. This is this is about all the little boys and all the little girls. And I just thought that was incredibly moving. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I've, I really wanted to finish on that note in the book because it is such a hopeful positive kind of it's a wish really that things can be different and I believe that they can I strongly believe that they can I see the evidence of that happening all the time and I see the evidence of men rejecting what it is patriarchy tries to make them conform to and I know it's possible I just know that it's really really hard um to reject it and I, I feel like the more of us who kind of become proactive in in showing how different things can be, the easier it will be for little boys. You know, like one of the things that, um, this is an odd thing to say, but when I was writing about the incels, um, you know, for listeners who don't know that, the involuntary celibates who, that's the name that they call themselves, um, it's really about entitlement and sexual dissatisfaction and frustration and how sexuality has been so tightly wound up in masculinity that if you're a man who isn't having sex the way that you think you should be, you're somehow being emasculated or oppressed in some way. Um, So the time that I spent reading through, you know, those community threads and, and reading some like really horrendous stuff and, you know, fantasies, being shared about all of the different things they wanted to do to women to punish them for not paying attention to them. It made me really angry and it made me feel really sick. Mm. And I, I don't have, you know, these are all adult men who are making choices to be this way now. And so my sympathy for them is extremely limited. But at the same time, I also felt just so incredibly sad when I was reading it because I thought at some point was, you know, the, like I said, my son was probably about, 15 months old when I was read when I was writing this particular part of the book and I remember going home and looking at him and just seeing this like abundance of joy in him and he doesn't know he just knows that he's like a person that's dropped onto this earth he doesn't know what he's supposed to be he doesn't know what's owed to him or what he sorry what he thinks is owed to him um and I remember just thinking that these men were all that way once too and I'm not saying that their parents failed them because, of course, like lots of people are raised by people who try and do the best that they can and sometimes society and conditioning just wins out. Mm-hmm. But it just made me feel so sad that these like beautiful little bundles with so much potential in them 
had turned out like this because we live in a world that teaches teaches everyone that masculinity is so inherently tied up in conquest and in dominating women mm. and in having all of the trappings of what people perceive to be success, that these men, their real grievance should have been with patriarchal standards, but they were expressing their grievances through how, how angry they were that they failed to live up to them. And I just thought it's just so fucked. It's just so fucking poisonous. You're talking about that, the rugby trial. Um, I witnessed someone being cross-examined in a sexual assault trial last year in Ireland and spent some time in a victim support unit. And I just remember looking around that room and thinking the people who don't believe women, don't believe people, don't believe survivors of sexual assault. I just wish that I could transplant them into this room and look at the faces of these people and just say, like, do you think that they want to be here? You know, do you think that they really want to be here? What what do we still think that people have to gain from lying about sexual assault? Yeah, this myth that somehow they all do it for attention, like the attention that they get is positive. Mm. It's so bizarre that that is still a rhetoric that continues why Mm. no one is going to gain anything Mm. did you say five different four or five different lawyers cross-examined that woman it was four different lawyers um and i think from memory it was over a period of eight days and she um she's also because you know her name even though her name was suppressed in the in the papers there were people who knew what her name was who were on the side of the men and so they released her name and she's had to move numerous times. Um, she's so fucking strong. Like, I don't know her name. I don't know who she is, but I just hope she knows how many women out there see how powerful she is and what an incredible, amazing thing she did, even though she was, you know, a fuck, I can, I could totally see. I remember she, you know, there was a quote from her about how she did this she didn't want to go forward, but she did it because she thought it could have been her sister. And, you know, the thing that this is something that I put in my book as well, and I don't know if this is it just seems like mind-blowing to me or if other women get this, but in the transcripts of the WhatsApp conversations that um, formed a huge part of the evidence um, were basically like some of the men involved had were also caught by the police deleting messages Um you know, to cover their tracks afterwards. And, yes, they've all been found not guilty by the court, but I, I believe her and I and I think that a gross miscarriage of justice took place in that trial. 100%. Um, yeah. But she said in the, in the WhatsApp transcript she was talking to her friend the next day, you know, and she, she said what had happened to her. And she talked, you know, she kind of recounted the, the assault in a bedroom and she said something that um, just struck me as being like I'd never thought about it like this before. And she said, I hadn't even shaved my legs or put on fake tan or anything. I wasn't up for fucking. Um, and, you know, I thought about the legal system and about how rape victims are always the ones put on trial and it's their behaviour that's scrutinised. Why did you go home with him? What were you wearing? Why were you kissing him, et cetera, et cetera. And it just, that, that, line from her really drove home to me how absent the reality of women's lives is from this whole system that women are trained to 
present themselves in a certain way and to, you know, like um, participate in physical beauty in a particular way that, of course, it makes sense that if we're going out for the night, we put on makeup and we might wear a low-cut top and we might wear tight clothes and we might flirt and we might have a pash um, and we might want to have sex regardless of whether or not we've shaved our legs or not. Like not, not all of us care about that stuff, obviously. But that if you've been indoctrinated into that system, to me, the clearest indicator of whether or not a woman who's participating in that system wants to have sex with someone she's just met isn't whether or not she's wearing makeup and a low-cut top. It's whether or not she's shaved her legs. Mm. Um, and I'm not saying, like, I don't, I'm not saying that as someone who thinks that shaving is really important or whatever. It's just the fact that she made that point to her friend showed me that that was something that was important to her. She wouldn't have done it if she didn't feel like she'd primped and preened. She wasn't up for it because she hadn't done what she felt was required of her. Mm. And when you're trying to have these sort of nuanced conversations about leg hair, about rape culture, whatever it might be, one of the things that I noticed because I was having a, a right old poke around your Instagram and Facebook and Twitter last night. And, okay, yes, we're used to the the barrage of insults and trolls and the abuse that you cop. But I wonder what's more frustrating, I would imagine, is sort of the willfully ignorant, you know, the people who um, who don't just want to call you a dumb slut, you know, die bitch, but who actually, yeah. it's it's almost like they're being kind of deliberately confused and, and they just refuse to see it. So I saw a lot of comments being like, Clementine, why is masculinity toxic? And, you know, all of the endless not all men and innocent until proven guilty comments, I suppose they're the ones that frustrate me the most because it's like in another life you might have actually understood this uh, or you could have got this you're not joe big balls 42 who's telling me to shove a butcher's knife up my cunt you are an a seemingly intelligent person but it's like you're just it's like you don't want to get it do you find that frustrating yeah i find it extremely tedious like you're exactly right the ones that are just like die bitch as you said whatever you know I heard it all before. Big deal. Um, it's the it's the endless repetition of stupid questions that gets me. It's, it's this demand on time, and not just from me, but from all women. Oh, well, why won't you explain it to me? Why is all masculinity toxic? Not all men. And it, and if you if you refuse to sit there and have the debate with them, debate. They always call it a debate. Like it's not a fucking debate then somehow like they take that as evidence that you can't have the conversation with them, that you're not able to prosecute your point. When lit- that's literally all you do, all you do is write about these things. <laughs> it's like there's a wealth of information that you are providing and you don't have to do that. <laughs> yeah, you're asking me to sit there for free and personally educate you when all you need to do is this great new thing called Google. You could just go and Google my name or anyone else's name and the phrase, and you'd probably come up with my argument for it. You but know? I but want you to explain it in an Instagram comment to me because otherwise I will not understand. <laughs> like, I mean, that's the other thing. Like, they think they're the only man who said to you that week, you know, well, why can't you explain this to me? They don't realise that they're not, not only are they not the only man that week, but they're not, like, you've had thousands of these questions before and it's not your fucking job to walk them through it, you know. Like I've written 
close to a million words probably over the last decade on these topics. And I'm not going to sit there and have a half hour conversation with someone rehashing them, especially when I know that that person at the end of it, they're not really having that conversation in good faith. They don't care. They don't, they don't want to learn or know anything new. Mm. If they did, they would go and actually do some reading. Mm. So that to me is the most frustrating thing. It's just the endless bloody distraction. I would love for women to, uh, it takes a bit to get to the point where you realize that that's what's happening, where your time is being wasted. Because for a while there, you feel obliged to have these conversations, not only because you think, oh, well, they're asking, so I'll try and convince them. But also I think a lot of women do feel that responsibility that if they if they don't know exactly how to argue against what this person is saying, that somehow their points are invalid or somehow their, their position is undermined. And that's not the case. You just might not know how to argue against a dickhead, but it doesn't mean your experience of the world is wrong you may also not be at the point yet where you can properly articulate your argument, but it still doesn't mean that your suspicion about the world is, is wrong. Yeah, and you say very clearly it's okay to block and tell someone to fuck off and you don't always have to have the best answer or the right answer. Sometimes they're just fucking time wasters. Exactly, and they're not there to learn and they 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 just want to humiliate you. Do you think it's possible to maintain a healthy relationship with social media? Yeah, I think that it is. You know, I... I spend probably less time now uh, dealing with these kinds of people and more time trying to have really productive, fulfilling conversations with people online. Um, And I find that really satisfying. You know, I've met some really amazing women and, like, we probably wouldn't be talking now if it weren't for social media, would we? Yeah. So I think that it's – I love how social media, um, in the you know, in the positive perspective, I love how social media has enabled – activists to really find a platform and reach out globally to each other in a way that was previously unavailable to them and which gave too much power to everyone who was trying to silence their voices oh my (laughs) darling son's come back into the room he's so adorable um now i know that you have a baby to to put to sleep so we won't take up too much of your time though you know, we would love to literally just pick your brains. There's so much that I feel like I'd love to to talk to you about. You have been such a kind of feminist leader for for us both over the years. But I'm I'm curious just before we go, does Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, which you're you know you're all over, serve different purposes? And then why are they different to say your online articles? Um, yeah, that's a great question. So Facebook is where I go to have longer rants. Twitter is where I like to talk about anything from politics to TV shows to, you know, what I've been doing that day. And it seems to me, I like the ephemeral nature of it, that tweets just kind of seem to disappear after a while. But I, I like to use Instagram for, you know, fun stuff, but things that I like to do, like I love to cook. So I like to use Instagram for talking about the food that I make or sharing pictures of clothes and fashion and um, more kind of lighthearted things. That's Mm. kind of what we've been hearing from a lot of people who are um, activists and spend a lot of their time with really serious issues. They use Instagram as kind of, yeah, their outlet. And it's really nice that 
people have managed to take different social media sites and like you say use it for you know the release of like oh hey I just made this delicious meal and you should be able to share that stuff and that's amazing that you can yeah and people tend to tell us that Instagram is kinder uh, which I think is really interesting yeah I mean I think that you know there's still definitely moments on Instagram where some people on my side of the political spectrum are like, well, I didn't follow you for fashion photos. Oh, my God. <laughs> I give you a fucking break. I know. I think that is a problem sometimes is that, um, you know, it's important for us all to kind of be conscious of how we engage with the world and, and be really careful about, like, doing no harm and owning harm when we've done it. But at the same time, there can be an expectation that people who – publicly kind of you know a public activist or you know political in some way that we are owned by the people who care about what we care about and that we we're never allowed to be like fully formed human beings who are like you know what today i'm gonna tweet about married at first sight because i am (laughs) i'm so sorry i've got a very needy little boy are you kidding you've literally spoken to us for like an hour (laughs) yeah we appreciate it so much so much so much it's so nice to talk to you thank you so much for um thank you so much for asking me like honestly it's a it's a thrill oh no we're thrilled thanks clementine we'll talk to you soon bye take care you too thank you bye thanks for listening to this episode of harness It would really help us if you could like, review, share, subscribe, follow, all that magical stuff you know what to do. One more thing. We are proud friends of Rafiki Mwema and the Carly Ryan Foundation. Both charities work tirelessly to help protect young people from harm and suffering. Support us by following the work of these amazing charities and, of course, each of the incredible guests we've had on the show. We'll include links in the show notes. Thanks for listening.